with gratitude. Mr. Cal Fussman, welcome to the 747 Conversations podcast. Thanks, Chris. It's wonderful to be here with you. I wish I had that bowl of pasta and sauce in front of me, but I'm imagining it. It is uh, warming up in the kitchen. I will send you a dozen jars of sauce, as well as the 2021 <laughs> our day planners. Oh, I, I'm all telling you, you, man, I use those day planners. <laughs> you tell your dad, I fill them up. You know what? He, um, that's going to mean the world coming from you, especially on this day. It's uh, Thursday, February 4th, and I've been down here in Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. He has just hopefully rounded the corner uh, from COVID. All right. And he needs as many positive blessings as possible. You were the first to know outside the family that he has been fighting this horrible disease, this virus. Uh, But nonetheless, I hear him clomping around upstairs doing big (laughs) multi-million dollar real estate deals. (laughs) You tell him, man, we we need him for many more years to keep putting out those planners. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I will, uh, I will relay that message for all of you listeners who are just seeing the video version of this. Uh, please check out our audio podcast at 747club.org to get the full bio, the full introduction, who you are seeing on video right now, I kid you not, is probably the greatest living legend we will interview here on this series, and here's why. I don't know if anybody's had a single greater impact on my dedication to bringing you great questions, to being a collector of amazing stories than this man right here, Cal Fussman. Again, you're going to see a longer technical bio in the description below, but this is a man who is everything from a New York Times bestselling author, a writer at large for Esquire magazine for over 30 years, a guy who's swam with tiger sharks, spent a week with Muhammad Ali, interviewed every big human being on the face of this planet you would ever want to know their stories, has boxed with Cesar Chavez, and who at the time was 87 and 0, and he lived to survive the story. (laughs) He is a father of a 40-yard field goal kicking kid. He is married to the most beautiful La Gloria, as he says, and he had breakfast every single morning with the late, great Larry King, who ate a bowl of Honey Nut Cheerios. I learned about Cal in November of 2017. I want to paint you a quick picture before we begin. I was sitting in a hotel conference room at a conference named Summit uh, that Elliot Biznow created. And to my left, wandering around the room was Jeff Bezos. To my right was Novak Djokovic. And in front of me was Kobe Bryant. And everybody was enthralled that Kobe had just written his letter Dear Basketball, and turned it into what would become an Academy Award-winning short film. And Kobe was talking about creativity, the things that matter in life, curiosity, and the list goes on. The crowd was literally enthralled. So much so that I've caught up with different friends like Matt Fiedler and Ahad Gadimi, 
who I didn't even know were in the room at the time. And they said that room changed their life. Well, as everybody was looking at Kobe, I was looking at this short, stubby <laughs> little guy from Brooklyn, Yonkers, with a fedora hat on and these square glasses interviewing Kobe Bryant. And it seemed like he had 80 yellow post-it notes scattered around his brain that every time Kobe would say something, this man would programmatically pluck one of those post-it notes and guide the conversation along to keep on track of topic. That man was Mr. Cal Fussman. So Mr. Cal, welcome to the podcast. Now that is what I call an introduction. <laughs> you know, that day, and then you uh, ended up in New York, uh, you know, a short few months later, and we got to spend a number of hours together at Soho House and took a wonderful group photo in the photo booth. Are many moments that changed the course of my life and my dedication to asking good questions. And so to start us off with here today, I want to ask you our famous gratitude question with a twist. Because the time that I came on your podcast, I asked you a simple question. You were interviewing me, and then I ended up interviewing you, <laughs> which you did on Tim Ferriss's podcast. You know, I asked you the question, if you could give credit or thanks to one person in life that you don't give enough credit or thanks to, who would that be? And you talked about your wife, La Gloria, who was sitting in the room with you that day. But now I want to put a twist on that question. If you could give credit or thanks to a person in your life that hurt you, that you've never talked about, and you don't have to talk about their name or their their description, but someone who hurt you along the way, who would that be? That really is an interesting question. I, I don't think in terms of being hurt, Possibly because even if I were hurt, even if I was hurt, I'm, I might not see it that way. I always see things sort of rolling from one thing to the next. And so something bad happens, but something good is going to happen, which will take it to a bad place. <laughs> which will take it to a good place. I, and so it's, I'm, I'm really going inside here to try to think of somebody who, who hurt me. I, I really don't have many people that I see as enemies or and it's hard for me to even think of people who see me as enemy, as an enemy, because, and th this came up when I first met Kobe, uh, because what happened was I was in my car and when the phone rang and you know, I said, no caller ID at the top. And so of course, I'm thinking, well, is this spam? Uh, but then again, I know a lot of famous people who have no caller ID. So I, I picked it up and, gal, it's Kobe. 
<laughs> and oh, I thought oh, I was oh, getting oh. pranked. I had just played or helped play a practical joke on my manager, and I thought my manager was like behind something. But the more he started talking, the more I realized like that's <laughs> it's Kobe Bryant. There's his voice is very unique. And we started to talk and he was doing some documentary work and he wanted to talk to me about jumping in and using my questions to help in this process. And so I went down to see him and when I did, I thought, wow, I wonder how this conversation is, is going to go because he sees everything through winning and losing. He sees everything about, I'm going to hit the last second shot and I'm going to win the game. And a competitive instinct that's off the charts. And I don't compete. My way of looking at the world is we're going to work together to get the most out of this conversation so that the world can benefit from it. And so I just wondered how we were going to mesh. And as soon as we got together, I realized, whoa, there was something much deeper in Kobe that many people had no idea of. And then in the midst of the conversation, he said it and he he repeated it in a podcast that we did together. He was saying that People looked at him the way you saw him on a basketball court, but they didn't see him in the off season when he was preparing for that last moment where he had to nail the three-point shot. And he was saying it was his curiosity that guided those off-season workouts to turn him into what he wanted to become. So he had to be very curious to find out how to get the most out of himself so that when he was in that moment, it would come through for him. And we both found out that we were brothers in curiosity. Mm -hmm. And so most of the people that I meet or who meet me, I think, see the relationship that way. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why it's really hard for me to think of somebody who hurt me or who certainly went out of their way to hurt me. Because mm-hmm. I give them no reason. Cal, I don't want to make this about me. All right. But go ahead. (laughs) I predicted that answer. And here's why. My hypothesis is that you are the most grateful person I've ever met. Besides maybe my girlfriend's sister, Hope (laughs) Sovereign. I got to meet her. You should. Oh, she'll she'll send you a drawing. It is going to be the coolest thing. Let me paint you a picture of Hope. Hope was born less than a year after my girlfriend, which makes them 
you know, Irish twins for, you know, it was within a year. So they're pretty much the same age for a couple of days. And Hope was, Hope was born with uh, spina bifida. Oh my with, goodness. Uh, um, Mary Calmorph, oh, shoot, I always get it wrong. Um, Carrie malformation. She has had hundreds of uh, over a hundred surgeries in her life. Um, she's wheelchair bound. When she went in to uh, fight a battle with cancer, her doctors commented that she was able to recover quicker than any kid in the peds unit that they had ever seen battle cancer because she was eternally grateful through COVID. I've had the opportunity to invite hope to pretty much every virtual gratitude experience we produce for our family and friends. Wow. And the first time I asked her that gratitude question, she struggled to figure out who has she never thought to thank because hope has been grateful for everybody. And why I say that about you is that curiosity is the greatest form of gratitude. Asking good questions, acknowledging the benefits you've received from others, appreciating, recognizing, and telling other people's stories, that's gratitude. That's recognition. It's what you do for your entire being, every instance in life. And this is the first time I've ever not asked our famous gratitude question. <laughs> this is the first time it came to me in meditation 20 minutes before starting. I said, I'm going to flip it up because if anybody has a unique answer to this, it would be Cal. And I thank you for that because the thing is that, that we learned from you is that even through hard times, a negative autobiographical experience, someone hurting you, someone accidentally doing something wrong, you can give gratitude to the positive consequences that have come from it. But it takes curiosity to see that perspective. That's a great point, Chris. You know, I'm going to tell you a story. Yes, 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 yes. That is the goal. <laughs> and, and I was, this is something, this little story, I was very grateful for when I heard it. And it's almost like you are a busboy for the first day on the job. And some somebody who used to be a busboy 50 years ago recognizes it, mm. pulls out like a $20 bill and says, here, kid. That's what it felt like when I heard this story. And it came about where I heard it in the midst of the Great Recession. Mm. So I'm talking to Laird Hamilton. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's a surfer. Yes, sir. And not just any surfer. I mean, He's this guy goes out to the middle of the ocean where there are 60-foot waves. And he surfs these monster waves. And I said to him, Laird, what happens when you go down under 60 feet of ocean? All that energy. And he, he said, you know what I do? 
first thing I do is I close my eyes because I don't want to waste any energy even seeing. Nothing I can do. Ocean's going to whirl me around like I'm a rag doll in a washing machine. So I just put my hands out to the sides, let them go limp, and let the ocean take me wherever it wants to take me. And the way he was explaining the ocean, it was almost attached it to humanity because he was saying what's going to happen eventually is tide goes in and the tide goes out. It's, I need to breathe, but the ocean's going to exhale and it's going to inhale. And he said that the moment that I feel the let up, I'm going to know, okay, it's time to go. And that's the moment that my eyes open, all my energy is summoned, and I go straight to the surface. And I don't know why it was so important to me, although looking back now, I had a really hard time during the Great Recession. And I... Like I believed I could surf that wave mm. and I overextended myself. So I had like a place on, e- on the East coast place on the West coast, right at the time <laughs> everything hit. And I was, I fought, I didn't close my eyes. I was just angry. Like, how could this happen? How could this happen? Like it was just done to hurt me. Like everybody is suffering. And so when Larry told me that, I said, you know what? The next time something like that happens, I'm going to remember what Laird said. I'm just going to close my eyes and I'm going to listen and see where it takes me. And so when COVID hit, I just... Here we go. Here we go. This is the 60 footer. I just shut my eyes and I started to listen. And I'm so grateful to Laird Hamilton for telling me that story because it changed my life, what, eight years later. So now I'm just feeling what the world is experiencing at the time of COVID. I'm basically was in a home in LA. I think I had uh, two, two of my kids were there and one of my kids' girlfriends and La Gloria. And I'm just listening. And what I'm hearing is that people are getting fired and furloughed for no fault of their own. And not only are they losing their income, but they're losing the health insurance that was attached to their employment. So during the worst pandemic in a hundred years, we got what 40% of the country, like without a safety net. And I just said, this is just wrong. It's just wrong. 
And in that moment, I started to, I still have my eyes closed, but I am, I'm thinking about this. And as the year started to come to a close, I had this crazy notion that I was going to reshape healthcare in America. <laughs> I mean, you know how crazy that is. I, I know nothing about healthcare in America. Nothing. I'd worked in an emergency room like 30 years ago, Barnes Hospital in St. Louis, and I learned some things there. But I, healthcare is such a complex thing to look into. And I was just entering it with no knowledge, but I just knew that it was something that I was supposed to do. And then started asking questions and I ran into a billionaire. Naveen Jain. There you go. There you go. You've done your research. And he has gone through many businesses. He's constantly reinventing himself and his businesses. And the latest is a company called Viome that does like saliva testing. So you could see like the bacteria in your gut and they can determine what you should be eating based on what's in your gut, not an idea that everybody should be eating something. It's, this is what you need. And he was saying that it's the novice that Mm. makes the change. It's the novice who comes in with the unexpected question because the expert cannot reshape anything. Maybe the expert can make it 10% better, 15% better but it's the novice that can make it 10 times better. And so I just went on this path and who knows where it's taken me. You're going to get a visit from Sophie the cat. Hi, Sophie. I'll tell you a story and I'll come back to the uh, transition to healthcare. (laughs) And this cat always does it. When, when I was interviewing for the What I've Learned column for Esquire magazine, I went out to meet Robert Duvall, the, consigli- the consigliere in The Godfather. Yeah. Great Santini. Yeah. Great actor. Phenomenal. And so we have a great session. And at the end of it, he says, you know, your photographer is coming out later. And... When he does, I guarantee you one thing. Like, we're going to go over by the corral, and my horse, Manu, is going to be there. And if this photographer is taking pictures of me, I guarantee you, Manu is going to get in the pictures. That horse is always getting in the pictures. (laughs) And so I leave. Later in the day, photographer comes. I don't know what happens. I pick up the magazine a few months later and there's the column that I wrote with all his wisdom. And next to it's a full page picture 
<laughs> Robert Duval by the corral with Manu the horse sticking <laughs> his head in front of Duval's. And I think Sophie the cat heard that story. And so <laughs> that's why she makes those appearances. Well, I hope you give her some good kitty litter, and I can't promise the cover of Esquire magazine over here, <laughs> but nonetheless, we're going to make her internet famous. Well, thank you, you know, so much, and uh, just taking it back to healthcare put me in a completely new place, and I'm very grateful to be in a space where I can help people simply by asking questions. I mean... Going back to the Kobe Bryant story that you shared earlier, one would argue that even through this great illustrious career you've had of asking good questions, that was just practice. Like Kobe Bryant talking about nobody seeing the practice he puts in in order to take that game-winning shot. So, Cal, this could be your game-winning shot. This, you know what happened to me? You know what happened? I was doing an interview the day after Larry King passed away. Mm. So I had breakfast with Larry every day for 12 years. Uh, I helped him write his autobiography, My Remarkable Journey. And we... We're breakfast buddies. And not only that, but he would take me to the CNN show and he would kind of position me off camera. But it allowed me to watch how he worked. Mm. And it allowed me, he's a great storyteller, to listen to the way he told stories, to the way he communicates, communicated. And even at the end, we did an internet show called Breakfast with Larry, and he actually put me between himself and the guest for me to moderate and read off the teleprompter and hold up the book, right? He wanted to show me everything. This is how you do it. And I realize now that in some way, he was preparing me. And so the day after, I'm having this conversation with Laurent Duvernay Tardif. He was an offensive guard, is an offensive guard for the Kansas City Chiefs, Chiefs. won the Super Bowl last year, also had just graduated from medical school. Hmm. (laughs) So after winning the Super Bowl, and as the team is – going back to try and win another, he's got to make a decision. Is he going to go on the front lines and fight COVID at a long-term care facility in Montreal? Or is he going to go back to the Chiefs, to his big contract, and win another Super Bowl ring or try for one? And he chose to go to the front lines. And it was very interesting when we got to the end of the conversation uh, because the conclusion that he came to after the year completely transformed the way he thought about being a doctor. Uh, Earlier on, he would go into a clinic and people would want his autograph. 
And he would actually say, like, no, no, I don't do autographs here. I'm the doctor. And he realized in this long-term care facility that nobody was going home. If if they got COVID and died, that was going to be it. If they didn't get COVID, they were going to stick around as long as they could. But eventually, they were going to pass away there. And so he began not to look at the job as, all right, I'm going to go in, I'm going to take the blood pressure and all the measurements I need. Then I'm going to go make sure that the doses on the medication is right. And then I'm going to go make sure that it's given. And he realized that these people in the, in the home couldn't see their families. Mm. Mm -hmm. And the thing he could most give them was communication, a conversation, something that made them feel alive. And when he said this, I thought, oh, man, that's it. He's got the solution because healthcare has all these problems. And it reminded me of that. Paul Newman movie, Cool Hand Luke, uh, where there's this great line, what we have here is failure to communicate. Mm. So many of the problems in healthcare are exactly that. Yeah. And Laurent had figured out the answer to communicate. And when he said that to me, I said, oh man, I can communicate I went around the world for 10 years without a home and no money, meeting people on trains and buses and figuring out a way for them to invite me home so I had a roof over my head. I mean, that's pretty good communication. (laughs) And I listened to Larry King communicate for 12 years straight, one of the world's best communicators ever. And I really came to believe that I have been prepared for this. And so I'm not looking around scared out there because I know that I can go in with a novice's question and make big changes in a way that experts would never think about it. And so I'm putting myself out there Anybody who's listening to this podcast, if you know a company, an organization in healthcare that needs help, just have them reach out to calfbusman.com. Absolutely. Let's I see what I, I can do for them. I can think of a heck of a lot of companies that can use. I, I mean, give us an example of how communication can help a corporate culture or how can communication help a leadership team or the way that they serve? How can your power of asking really good questions transform the way healthcare or hospitality people on the front line serve the needs of their customers? Okay. I'll give you three examples. Like one, what are you drinking there? Propel. Okay. All right. Where do you get your Propel? Amazon. All right. Great. Amazon, 
Maybe you, that's a Gatorade product, isn't it? Yes. Propel? Yeah, I like Propel. You go into the supermarket or you go onto Amazon to get your Propel. You look it up, very clear. Propel, this is the price. You, all you got to do is click buy and they're going to tell you when it's coming, how much you got to pay for it, how much you're going to be taxed for it. You know, in that moment, what this transaction was. Yeah. Now let's put that into healthcare. Imagine that the mm-hmm. healthcare product is Propel. Mm. All right. You go into the supermarket, you go on Amazon And it says, propel. You click buy and it says, you know, we'll tell you how much that's going to cost in Uh. about six weeks. And and the craziest part is that the price you're paying may be different from your neighbor and different from their neighbor. This is nuts. And I'm told simply by just getting the pricing right. And so that everybody knew what they were getting, how much it was going to cost, what they were going to have to pay. Uh, We save like $25 billion a year. I Mm. came from a doctor named Reagan Anderson in Colorado Springs. This is all over healthcare, everywhere you look, even the best parts of healthcare. Okay, you're you're a good storyteller, Chris. I love hearing you tell stories. <laughs> we sit around, we can tell stories all morning, all afternoon, all night, have a good time. And when you tell stories, you instinctively know that a story is rooted in vulnerability. Yeah. If you don't have a vulnerable character, you have no story. Kurt Vonnegut proved that. There you yeah. go. And it, look, this goes back to Homer and the Bible. It's, it's, it's just a fact. If you, if, if you have a character who is not vulnerable in any way, nobody's going to care because they can't get in that character's shoes Mm -hmm. and feel for the character. Mm -hmm. All right. So we understand how important vulnerability is to storytelling. Now let's look at a place that should have, that does have, I guarantee you some of the best stories in the world, hospitals. All you see is vulnerability, Chris. Everywhere you look. And who are the worst storytellers? What companies are the worst storytellers? The healthcare companies. Mm -hmm. And they admit it to you. And then you look into this and you start talking to the doctors or the nurses. And there's reasons for this. I've, I've talked to a nurse who blew my mind when 
she just casually pointed out to me, she helped like deliver baby or not deliver babies prematurely, but once the babies were delivered, they went into her unit and her job to get a baby that is less than a pound or I don't, I don't know how low they go to get to a point where you can bring them back. But this nurse said to me, Cal, like every day I have a baby that like fits in the palm of my hand. And I said, like, do you ever tell anybody this? Because quite often, most of the time, that baby is given the care and a few months later, released as a healthy baby. And she said, like, no, nah, we hardly, <laughs> hardly ever, like, thought it was odd. And when I started asking questions, she said, you know, it's just what we do every day. And so that's the mindset of healthcare professionals. If you're a doctor or a nurse, you could be doing something that's miraculous. And then you wake up the next day to do it again. You've, not, you've never been trained as a storyteller. You've never been trained to stop and acknowledge it and say to somebody who can tell stories, hey, we have a great story here. Nah, they just keep doing their jobs and that's wonderful, but they're losing all the power that comes with storytelling. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what we have here is failure to communicate. <laughs> and then I'll, t- I'll tell one more. And this, this one is really uh, close to me because I hope somebody out there can benefit from this. I'm going to tell you about a guy named Phil the Pharmacist. Mm. Works in Memphis, and he's got a company that not only does regular pharmacy, but they get donations from pharmaceutical companies, uh, specifically around cancer drugs, when there's a six-month expiration date on the medication. Because once it reaches that point, pharmaceutical company can't sell it. They can donate it, get a tax break. And Phil can then find somebody in the next six months that needs it. And I'm talking about treatments that go for $30,000 a month. That's what we're Mm. talking about here. So then Phil worked with some legislatures to get it so that individuals could donate their cancer medications. And by the way, Phil wants to do this with all medications, but he just Mm. started with cancer. And people who had their chemo changed, which left the chemo they weren't using in the medicine cabinet, could bring it to Phil. Uh, If they beat cancer, they could send it to Phil. If unfortunately they passed away, their family could send it to Phil. And now Phil has got millions of dollars worth of chemotherapy pills that he is looking to give away for free, free, free. And 
All you got to do is go to flip your script, S-C-R-I-P, like in uh, prescription. Based, yeah. Dot com, and you can get to Phil. But my point is, Chris, there are thousands of oncologists in this country that have no idea that Phil exists. I put him on my podcast. Some crews are going out to interview him and hopefully the message will get spread further. But again, what we have here is failure to communicate. And so everywhere I look in healthcare, I just see failure to communicate. I know there are great stories. I know that there are great things that can be done for people. And so I am just throwing myself into this all because I heard Laird Hamilton tell me the story about what you do when you get thrown off a 60-foot wave. It just goes to show you the ups and downs and that whole cycle of life. You just got to appreciate every moment and see what you get from it. You know, Cal, it's, it's a beautiful mission because you're the first person that will always ask, who are you? Where are you going? Um, how do you feel? And you may not see what the product or the end result will be, but it's there. And what's interesting is your body language, for the third time this interview, you've used this hand signal, which is momentum. Yeah, I'm, I am the wave now. I yep. am the wave. <laughs> the, uh, an ocean's wave you know, is, is caused by wind. Right, the confluence of energy over time creates power. And when that power goes and hits the banks of the shore of the beach, it topples over and something is created. And the first time in this call that you used that, you, you were talking about gratitude. You were talking about finding when something bad happens, something good happens. Something bad happens. Something good happens. The second time was talking about Laird. The third time is talking about this. And it's it's such a cool thing because we have a hypothesis that the more grateful you are, the more cycle of gratitude will be created. This energy is contagious. It's like the ocean's wave. You give and it comes back around. You give and then it comes back around. And as I mentioned, you, to me, are one of the most grateful people I've ever met because you dedicate your entire life telling the stories of others, helping others be recognized and appreciated for the value that they bring into this world. And I thank you for that. Um, well, thank you, Chris. Science shows that in a positive psychology micro-intervention, there's only two things that are guaranteed to have a lasting impact after this kind of shake up this micro intervention it's mindfulness and gratitude and the four things that positive psychology micro intervention inspires is hope pride optimism self-confidence self-efficacy resilience and so what you've acknowledged is that yes 2008 was tough yes 
COVID was tough, but you're dedicating yourself even more to telling the stories of others because that's what sparks further gratitude-based action. Yeah, and I think when I look back on it, and I think you really hit it, when I look back on a lot of the interviews I've done over the years, I loved every moment of it. And I get that some people listened to it and thought, wow, I never knew that. Or, oh, what can I do with that piece of wisdom? Maybe it changed them in a way. But this is the first time in my life where I'm actually waking up every day wondering, all right, whose life can be changed today? Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful thing. You um, you have have, have previously told of of the the stories of of people who have written into you who were on the edge of suicide and the soundtrack of of what was playing on in the background was a podcast of yours and whatever you were saying on that podcast pulled them out of that dark time and i know that with the scale that healthcare systems have in our world today the ability for you to tell their stories even better from a communications perspective is going to save thousands and thousands of lives at the time when they need it most. Because as I mentioned back to hope, it's, it's funny that we're talking about healthcare. I didn't even realize we we're going to bring hope into this, but hope was able to fight all those surgeries and fight all the cancer and the bone marrow transplant because of her uh, ability to be grateful and the ability to have hope. And what happened was her mother, when hope was in the hospital, a woman named Michelle came in and saw that uh, hope's hospital room looked very bland. And she, Michelle came in and said, hope, what kind of things do you like in life? What kind of stories do you like to tell? What kind of games do you like to play? And she came back and she decorated Hope's room. And she's done that with thousands of kids across the country is to give them a more comforting stay when they're in a, a very dark place. And Hope's mom now runs a nonprofit called Wish Upon a Teen, which goes in and helps design different people's rooms in their Design My Room program. So it's 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 really a testament that stories sell, data points don't. The people that you're going in to try to help are people who studied numbers and they studied statistics and they studied all these things that they're supposed to keep in their brain, but it's up to you to help them connect that to their heart and then share those stories with others to get more people to ask for the help to get more people to donate or invest to get them to help even more people. I, I am behind that a hundred percent. And not only that, but I've got somebody to introduce to hope. I did these. Uh, have you ever run a Spartan race? 
No. You, you know about Spartan at all? Only through your podcast yeah. and through your own running of it. <laughs> yeah, there's a, a obstacle races and they got uh, sprints and supers and beasts. The sprints like three to five miles. Supers like 10 miles with like 25, 30, 35 obstacles. You're climbing walls, throwing spears at targets. You're... Uh, going under barbed wire and it's just one obstacle after the next. And you just keep going. And then the beast is 17 miles. <laughs> and, and so I did a trifecta, all three of them at different points in a year. And one of the people who helped get me through this was little Misty Diaz. Mm. Bifida. Mm-hmm did these races on crutches and like helped teach me climb ropes. <laughs> it's, it's an amazing woman. And I'm sure uh, that she and hope would get along great because uh, little Misty has like an amazing sense of gratitude and hope mm-hmm. and strength for the future. And I mean, I think she did like five trifectas in one year. And she's like almost like an Olympic athlete. And when you see somebody with spina bifida doing that, there's just no way you can say to yourself, nah, I can't, I can't do that. You, you got to do it. Yep. And I think there is a lot of gratitude to be found in people who inspire us in those ways. And it sounds to me like hope is right in that camp. She's a great gal. She, um, Ellen DeGeneres had her on her show. Um, Hoda had her on her show. She has such a spirit. It's, it's a bright, bright, bright. We, we have a, a painting of of the word hope on our wall in 28 different languages. Uh, Speranza is Spanish. Hope is, is American or English. Uh, my friend Tom Sparico uh, owns a nonprofit, uh, the Curativity Foundation that raises money for St. Jude's and the kids from St. Jude's designed or painted the painting and, we had the opportunity to buy it at an auction and uh, hang it proudly on our wall. So hope wow. is not only a, a a benefit or a side effect of gratitude, but gratitude is a side effect and a benefit of hope in the meta, metaphysical and physical and metaphorical saying of the words. It's um, there's a lot of inspiration out there. I'm actually excited next week and yeah, next week on the 11th, we are, Oh, actually, I got to connect you to to Dwayne J. Clark. You and Dwayne are living artifact collectors, and you have JFK in common. So, so I'll let you ask Dwayne about his JFK collect. He he runs a big healthcare uh, uh, nursing uh, home group out of. Uh, Seattle with 2.5 billion assets under management, 2,500 employees. You're going to love him. But he, um, he has probably one of the more valuable JFK collections in the world. Wow. And the rocking chair, 
the this, the that, a lot of things. And I know you got your start in question asking. Uh, do you mind telling the readers uh, in as we start to close out your, your JFK story? Sure. It goes back to February 19, I'm sorry, November 1963, a Friday afternoon. And I want you to imagine me, my second grade class, I'm the shortest guy in the class. And Miss Jaffe leaves the room and comes back a minute later, a completely different person. I mean, same clothes, but she was blanched and she started talking in a way that was so careful, it was scary. And she told us that President Kennedy had been shot. Well, I was living in New York at the time, so Eastern time, and we all got released from school. We ran home, turned on the TV, and found out that, in fact, President Kennedy had been assassinated. And that the vice president, Lyndon B. Johnson, had stepped up and assumed the role of president. And that night, my parents realized I had just turned seven years old, but like the week before. And it occurred to them that I'd never really been in a position where death was right in front of me. And they didn't know how I was going to take it. And this was all the country was talking about. And so they called me over the kitchen table and they said, Cal, what happened today was a tragedy, but we want you to know that this has happened before in our country's history. And the country has a plan to move forward. And that's why, as you saw, Lyndon B. Johnson, the vice president, is now the new president. And when you wake up tomorrow morning, you're going to have breakfast just like you did last Saturday morning. You're going to go out and play just like you did last Saturday afternoon. And we want you to know that you can go ahead and get a good night's sleep because everything in time will return to a sense of normal. And so they go off to talk to my younger brother. I'm sitting at the kitchen table and I'm just thinking about this. I'll show you how young and naive I was. Just turned seven. And I thought if you had a middle initial, that meant you were going to get to be president. Because the only people that I ever heard of with middle initials became presidents. Harry S. Truman, Dwight D. Eisenhower, John F. Kennedy, Kennedy. now Lyndon B. Johnson. (laughs) So I'm sitting at the table thinking, this guy, Lyndon B. Johnson, I, I wonder what he was thinking. Because he always knew he was going to be the president. 
He had the middle initial B. Was he scared to be? Was well, at first, my first thought was, what is he thinking in the moment he became president? Was he happy to be the president? Because he always knew he was going to be the president and he finally got there. Or was he sad to be the president because the only reason he was president was because of the assassination? And then I thought, wow, what if he's scared to be president? Because they might come and try and kill him too. And so I'm just sitting at the table thinking, like, what's going on in Lyndon B. Johnson's mind right now? And a bunch of other options came up to me in my mind. And finally, I just got a piece of paper and a pen and I just started writing. Dear President Johnson, what does it feel like? And I asked him if he felt happy, if he felt sad, if he felt scared. I threw out a few other alternatives and then I wished him well. And we had just learned how to send in a letter by addressing an envelope in school. And so I knew where the envelopes were and I got the envelope and I wrote President Lyndon B. Johnson, the White House. I put my address in the top left-hand corner, uh, licked the stamp, that's how we used to do it, put it in the top right-hand corner. And I just tucked my letter inside the envelope, closed it, and stuffed it in my pocket. I didn't tell anybody about this letter. I I don't know why I didn't tell anybody. I just put it in my pocket and said, you know what? Tomorrow when I go out to play, I'm just going to drop it in the mailbox. So next day, we have breakfast. I go outside to play. I remember the letter, put it in the mailbox. And in two weeks, I completely forgot about it. Month passes, two months pass. Long gone in my memory. About six months later, my mom comes running up the steps into our apartment, and she's got an envelope in her right hand from the White House, from the president, (laughs) to me. And when we started to read it, I could tell how out of my league I was (laughs) because the second sentence, it was so respectful, this letter, the way he addressed me. He didn't address me as a second grader. And we knew it because when the second sentence started, it began something like this. In answer to your query, (laughs) and I had no idea what a query was, (laughs) but I'll tell you one thing. Pretty soon, the apartment started to fill up with people. Everybody wanted to hold this letter from the president. And the principal from the school called. They wanted me to bring it to school. And I knew in that instant, because it changed my life that very moment, 
a good question could get you to the most powerful person or place on the planet. And that lesson walks with me to this day. I am very grateful for the power of questions and I'm grateful to be able to ask them. And now I'm grateful for the answers that I hope can change lives through healthcare. So it's, uh, this is sort of my way of serving spaghetti now, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you don't have to, uh, you don't have to get fat along the way. Like I did. <laughs> <laughs> You've done you know, the opposite by running in the races. <laughs> I, you know what? I just, I moved back across the United States to be with my dad. He's going to be turning 90 soon. And he had been alone since the virus struck. And it's been so wonderful to, to spend this time with him. But at the same time, I... I'm now out doing Spartan races. There are no Spartan races right now. And I just passed the gym this afternoon. It was closed. And I realized I, I got to get back out there. Uh, and this gym had a rope to the ceiling. I said, man, I got to get up that rope. got to get up that rope. But I'm feeling that way about all aspects of my life right now. Time to get up the rope. Mm. Well, Mr. Cal, that not only is that rope a lucky rope, but the people who watch you climb that rope learn something along the way. Because when you learn things yourself, all of us benefit. When we watch you interviewing people the way you watched Larry King interviewing people, we learn. And I thank you for that dedication to that craft. It was, my, my job title for all the listeners, my job title before meeting Cal Fussman was founder and curator of the spaghetti stuff. After meeting <laughs> Cal Fussman, it was founder and chief question asker. There you go. That makes me happy. You just made my day, Chris. Cal, when I met you, in November of 2017, and we really met each other at the, at the after party at, I believe, Kevin's house um, with Alex Benayan. They were hosting a little closing thing. And you were walking in the party, and I was talking to my girlfriend, and I said, oh, my God, there's Cal. Cal Fussman's walking in. And she said, hang up. Go talk to him. I said, what am I going to say? <laughs> she said, ask him your gratitude question. And if I don't know if you remember, but the first thing you you walked in with with three friends, and I I said, Cal, if you could give credit or thanks to one person in your life that you don't give enough credit or thanks to, who would that be? You answered your mom. And then when you had me on your podcast, I asked you that question again, and and you said your wife, Gloria. And now you happen to be living five minutes down the road from your dad. And so in closing, I must just ask the question, 
if your dad was on this call with us right now, Cal, what would you say to him? That is a long answer, but I'll try and boil it down because one of the things we've been doing is watching movies every night. And it's interesting because many of the movies are father-son movies. And so you get to see the father-son relationship play out and then turn to each other and maybe ask a question. Like, how are you seeing this? So last night we were watching Argo. You ever see that movie? Yeah, Affleck, yeah, yeah. George oh, yeah. Clooney produced it. Ben Affleck was starting it. And it was about a uh, CIA agent who, after the American hostages were taken in the American embassy in Iran, a few of them got out, escaped, and were hiding in the Canadian uh, government offices or the home of one of the Canadian officials. And it was Ben's character who had this idea on how to save them by making up this whole elaborate scheme to film a movie in Iran and then get all of the prisoners, I guess you could call them prisoners uh, because they couldn't leave a house Uh, on a flight to freedom. And before Ben Affleck's character goes, you see that his kid was having a birthday party and he couldn't go to the kid's birthday party. And you didn't know if he'd ever be able to come back Mm because if they caught him, he was dead. Mm -hmm. And so so you see a little of the kid in the beginning or the notion of the kid. And then the mission is successful. It's, it's an amazing story. Uh, and at the end, Ben Affleck comes back to America and he wins this special CIA award that you're not allowed to know about because it's a CIA award. And then he goes to be with his kid and the movie kind of ends with him laying back on his bed and his kid at his side. And it's a really gentle, loving scene. And I turned to my dad and I said, would, would you have like done that? <laughs> would you have had the cojones to do that? And he looked at me and said, nope. And I said, neither would I. <laughs> <laughs> And the beauty of the moment was we didn't even have to say anything. We both knew. And I think that's the place my father and I are at right now, where I could look over and we can simply through eye contact, and, and, and to get to the bottom of the answer, 
In communication, 10% is the words. 30% is the tone of voice. 60% is the body language. And so I would just turn to my dad and he'd be able to look at me and know anything he wanted to know. What's your dad's name? It's Herb. And that's a good feeling to have. That's a very good feeling to have. Well, cheers to Herb. Propel. Herb, I'm going to order some more Propel on Amazon to give you a true toast. There you go. I I will have a very stiff drink tomorrow (laughs) on Friday night. Will you say hello to your dad and give him my wishes for great health going forward, many planners to come, and I hope we can all get together at one point because now – I'm in North Carolina. You're in South Carolina. We're pretty close. Yeah, this is a little too close for comfort. Well, Cal, I you know I can't I can't thank you enough for coming on this. You're you're such an important man to so many people. But as you said so on this podcast, this is your time to listen. This is your time to learn, and I'm so excited to see the impact that this next chapter is going to have on your world, on the world around us, on the entire world. Um, because when we pair you with some of the best healthcare companies on the planet, you're going to reach in there and help them tell such good stories that we're going to fight off some pretty, pretty crazy stuff. Do you, do you have any uh, comments in closing before we wrap up? Yes, thank you. I'm so grateful, Chris. <laughs> I love this kitty right at the right time. When, if, if this was a zoom, if this was one of our virtual gratitude experiences, this would be the moment to take the group photo and everybody would grab their pets and say, meow. <laughs> Sophie, the cat was looking for her curtain clothes there. So I love it. Thank you well, to all our listeners. I bid you adieu. Uh, I, I hope you are as invigorated and inspired as I've always been by this great man, especially now to know you don't have to have the answers, but as long as you're curious and you're a good question asker and you create the safe space to have intuition within yourself, the answers will come. Look out for the good omens. Look out for the bad omens. Sometimes the bad things that happen to us end up being good in the long run. And the more that we can be grateful for the positive consequences that have come from those negative life experiences, the better off our resilience and enduring personal resources will be in the long run. Matthew McConaughey just wrote his book, Green Lights, and there's a chapter in there, a passage in there at the beginning that says, the red lights of our past are now the green lights in the rearview mirror of our life. What is destruction is now construction. What is death? is now birth. So take that with you in every step of the matter. Please reach out to Cal. If you're having a tough time reaching out to him, just reach out to me with what you'd like and I'll pass it along to him. Look him up on um, you know, calfussman.com. Look up his podcast, Big Questions with Cal Fussman. Trust me, everything you've seen now, you should see him on the other side of the microphone <laughs> it's ridiculous so anyways thanks for tuning in uh, click that share button let me know any questions comments thoughts or concerns that you may have 
Keep coming back. It works if you work it. I hope you all are having a phenomenal day on Earth. Remember, folks, it's your world. Go explore, and we'll see you next episode.